them. So if you missed last week, we're in this letter, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And last week we talked about sex. So if you missed that, um, we got this podcast and you can listen to it. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, we talked at length last week uh, about some background things that we'll get back into today. And we talked about this tendency to view our, our sexuality as the most important thing about us. That it's the most, that it's for some reason who we're attracted to and, and sexual desires become the most important thing about us for seasons in our lives. And Paul talked about how the most important thing about us should be pleasing God. Should be that trajectory in our life. And that we can view our sexuality through the future. Through what God calls us to be in the future. And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to uh, check that out. But this morning, we're going to look at four verses following that. And we're going to jump right in. Let me read those. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. If you need a Bible, there's a stack back there. It goes like this. Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all, the, all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And so as we kind of dive into this a little bit, um, there's another little piece of background for us. Last week, we talked about patron and client relationships. We also talked about the fact that they lived in an honor and shame culture. And part of that honor and shame culture went like this. Um, instead of us, we, we're used to living, we're a very individualistic society. We live in, we live in a way that's like uh, the individual is, is prominent, right? Uh, my needs, uh, my self-esteem, my self-worth, um, and, and we're, we're Americans, so that individualistic piece of us is, is, is pretty unspoken, isn't it? In, in their society, it was about the collective. It was about the group. And so you could bring honor or shame on the group, and that was actually the most important thing you thought about all the time. You didn't think about yourself. You thought about what your actions did to the group, whether it was your family name, okay, or it was the, the tribe you came from, the Jewish heritage you had, or uh, the Greek heritage you had. Whatever it was, your individualism was not important. It was about the group. And for us, it's really difficult to think about. And so when we read these verses, we read, uh, you know, we read, here's, here's how some of the verses go. It says, now, about your love for one another. He, he's not talking to you specifically. The yous are us's. The yous are we's. Okay. So when he says about your love for one another, he's talking about the church in Thessalonica. He's talking about the whole group. He's talking about restoration as a group. He's not talking about you 
as an individual. And so the problem is, is how you and I see church. You and I see church coming to church on a Sunday morning as a, as a voluntary association of individuals. Is, is, it's, a kind of, it's up to me whether I come and associate with other individuals in the room. That's how we see church. And, and the only thing that binds us together, okay, is our preferences for what us individuals like about a particular church. And for Paul, the church was a body. It was a house. It was a family. It was this group metaphor. It was, it was something bigger than the individual. For us, it's, do I like the songs? Do I like the coffee? Do You know what I'm saying? And so we have this hard time negotiating what Paul's talking about sometime. Paul would say that this is not just a hangout time. Paul would say it was a time for us to become more and more like a family. More and more after each other in relationship. And so there's so many things happening in this passage. And and Paul talks about their love for each other and how their love for each other was taught by God. This this Greek word is theodidactoi. And it's this, this idea of being that God teaches through his spirit. And remember earlier in the passage, earlier in their letter, it, uh, Paul talks about how God makes us love more. And we don't generate that on our own, that there's something that God does in us and through us, a very supernatural way to love somebody else, even if they have nothing to offer us. Precisely because they have nothing else to offer us. That's love generated by the Spirit of God. And so there's so many things happening in here. There's, there's this phrase about living a quiet life. What does that even mean? You know, you, how do you live quieter? Uh, it talks about minding your own business, which, you know, husbands and wives, you just, we could say it's biblical. Mind your own business. And you say that to your spouse, you know, whatever. You, you've got this work with your hands thing going on. Um, which some people have twisted and confused as to a very capitalistic verse, you know, that, that everybody's got to work and, you know, kind of a thing, which capitalism wasn't invented yet, so you can't use that card. Um, and so, so there's so much happening. And, and I was a little puzzled by this passage as I dug into it. And, and one of the background issues that's going on here is that the, the Thessalonian church, remember, this is one of the first letters Paul ever wrote And the Thessalonian church believed that Jesus was coming back any moment. There was a a very uh, real belief and possibility that, that at any moment Jesus was coming back. He was coming back within their lifetimes. And so you've probably heard some of these, uh, these preacher guys out there who have, who have uh, nailed down the day of when Jesus is going to return, and, and, and they're, they're excited about it, and they're passionate about it, and they get a whole bunch of other people excited and passionate about it, and these people end up like selling their homes and quitting their jobs, and then October 12th comes by, and they're like, well, I guess he was wrong on that one. And meanwhile, uh, no more job, no more house, Right? 
You may have heard those stories. They're, they're pretty tragic. And so some of that is happening here. That Jesus is coming soon, and so some of the people in the church had quit their jobs, and they were living off of the patrons in their life. Remember, the patron-client relationship was, uh, you were born into the status uh, you were just born into, and and there was nothing you could do to change your status. And so if if you were born in kind of more of a a slave culture, a slave family, whatever, you, you had a real tough time getting out of that. And if you were born into wealthy elite status, the society kind of kept that going for you. There was, there was not too many uh, uh, lose-it-all stories in this, in this time. And so if, if, you had, um, if you were of low status and you needed um, kind of a loan or a way out or someone that would work on your behalf, you would find a patron. And a patron would work and negotiate with other patrons on their level on your behalf. And your uh, loyalty to them going forward was your faith. See, faith, we talked about this last week, faith was not believing in what was unseen. Faith was fidelity to your patron. And so when your patron extended grace, charis, which is the Greek word for grace, and whenever we see grace and faith together in Scripture, Paul is talking about a patron-client relationship. And so if if you were extending uh, grace to a client, they would reciprocate with fidelity to their patron. And so Paul is saying, don't live off your patrons. Don't quit your jobs and just live off of the backs of other people. He talks about working with your hands and and the goal of all of this. This is the, the final goal of what he's saying in verse 12. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul's talking about how your ultimate patron is God and shouldn't be anybody else. And he's, his, his ultimate goal here for the Thessalonians is that people who do not follow Jesus would not be repelled by you, but that they would be curious because of you. that we would not be dependent on outsiders. That you wouldn't hitch your wagon as a church to something other than God. That you wouldn't lock yourself into any other thing that's happening, any other form of, of, of living and breathing and functioning other than God. And for us, that has a lot to do in our day and age. The, the Christian church has, has, has hitched its wagon to politicians, to economic systems, to all of these things, to the American dream. And, and look what's happened. Look what's happened. People are repelled by it. People are frustrated by it. So Paul is saying our goal is to win the respect of outsiders. On the outside, the people would see on the inside what's going on and not be repelled. And, and so, so what is causing this affection? What is causing this lifestyle? What is 
causing this work ethic in people. And so he says there's three real big things here that Paul is working towards. Uh, Working hard, living a quiet life, whatever that means, and loving one another is what we're digging into. And Paul is recreating, he's creating kind of a a community ethos here, a a re-socializing of this church, kind of a reorienting of who they are. And it matters, he says. He says, what happens in here to the church in Thessalonica? What happens in here matters. It deeply matters because people out there are looking in here and wondering if it's worth it. Wondering if it means anything. Wondering if it's important. And so why is he re-socializing them? See, they were a marginalized group. They were attacked and oppressed and pushed out to the margins. And they were hated for almost 400 years until something curious happened in history. A guy named Emperor Constantine had a vision of a cross right before he went into battle. And he kind of made up his mind that if he won the battle, that he would make Christianity the state religion. And what happened before that, in those 400 years, 380 years of of being marginalized, being persecuted, uh, being kind of under the radar, okay? Living in such a way that you weren't the dominant culture, but you were affecting the culture. Turned upside down. And the persecuted became the persecutors. And the oppressed became the oppressors. And now we live in a time where if you were to survey the culture, you could say, oh, it's a, it, maybe it's a bad time for the church. Maybe it's a good time for the church. How, how do we engage our culture? How do we engage what's happening? Is there trouble in the distance for the church. You know, Paul is, is writing to the Thessalonians and he's saying, there's trouble. It's not going to get prettier. Hatred was increasing. But he's saying, keep being the sort of church that changes lives. Keep being the kind of community that changes lives. Don't lose your voice. Don't lose your voice for in the lives of your friends. Don't lose your voice in the lives of your patrons. Don't lose the voice you have in this world. Don't lose it. Become the church of the future. Become the church of the future that withstands culture, that withstands the shifting of opinions. Don't lose your voice. So why should we care about this? I've been reading a book called Unapologetic by a guy named Francis Spufford. And this guy is brilliant, um, and he normally writes science fiction. But he took a stab at apologetics. <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant what he wrote at the beginning of his book. And it's kind of a lengthy quote I'm going to give you. But I just want you to hear if you're hearing what uh, you're feeling in regards to your faith in this world right now. He says, my daughter has just turned six. Sometime over the next year or so, she will discover that her parents are weird. We're weird because we go to church. This means, well, as she gets older, there will be voices telling her what it means. 
getting louder and louder until by the time she's a teenager, they'll be shouting right in her ear. It means that we believe in a load of Bronze Age absurdities. That we're self-righteous, that we fetish pain and suffering, that we advocate wishy-washy niceness. That we're too stupid to understand the irrationality of our creeds. That we build absurdly complex intellectual structures on the marshmallow foundations of a fantasy. That we're infantile and can't do without an illusory daddy in the sky. That we destroy the spontaneity and hopefulness of children by implanting a sick mythology in your minds. That we teach people to hate their own natural selves. That we want people to be afraid. That we want people to be ashamed. That we want to have an imaginary friend that we believe in, a sky pixie. That we prostrate ourselves before a God who has the reality status of Santa Claus. That we prefer scripture to novels, preaching to storytelling, certainty to doubt, faith to reason, censorship to debate, silence to eloquence, in life, and death to life. Some hard words. And if you're wondering what our world thinks about what you believe, that's it. That's it. And you might feel uncomfortable with that. And you should. And there's something of truth to that. And in his, his book is, is beautiful because he, he digs into some of the things that, uh, that we really need to dig into as, as followers of Jesus. But it used to be that being an American meant you were a Christian. And that's not anymore. And in my opinion, that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. See, when religion is muddled with a political agenda, it always goes bad. It always goes bad. And, and whenever it is deinstitutionalized, whenever Christianity is ripped from the center of the institution, it actually grows. It actually means something. Just look at the early church. And so new things, to, there's new things for us to learn and to cope with. There's culture we live in that is increasingly angry and detests Christianity. It, they, they would say it's dangerous and damaging to believe in Jesus. So what do we do? We've got a couple options. We could, we could become more rigid and more fundamental, <laughs> which that never really goes well. <laughs> We could kick and scream. We could fight back. We could, we could pander to the world. We could pander to the world and, and try to make this fit better. And, and, and we could change with it. But Paul is actually advocating a harder way. A hard way. That's full of joy in the face of trial. He's advocating a way that loves all people and at the same time is devoted to the truth. It's, it, the, he advocates an incredible morality for the people of God. That we don't push or force on people who don't follow God. It, he, he talks about offering peace no matter what we face and, and this a level of compassion that is so full of in us that it moves us towards, it compels us towards our city and our friends and our neighborhoods. 
with, with just a huge amount of intensity. See, people out there, they're not looking for a cooler version of Jesus. They're just not. They don't want a cooler version. They actually want people of conviction and grace. That people who actually live like Jesus. Like, what would that look like? And we talk about this a lot because it is so important right now. And how do we live in a culture like this? How do we become the people of the future? And, and Paul has three different things that we're going to dig into. The first one is, is think about our work differently. That we would be a people that think about our work differently. Now, now listen to this in verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, and we'll get into that next, but you should, show, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. And, and like I told you, this isn't a verse about capitalism. This isn't about everybody should work and work hard. And like I said, it wasn't invented yet. And so uh, this work ethic that he talks about that is this allows you to live without blame. This, this idea of what we do is important, and we'll get into why here in a second, but that if you work hard and it goes well with you, then you can be generous. He's talking about the community itself, the whole community here. If the community is known as a hardworking community that doesn't shirk off their duties and doesn't milk the system and doesn't uh, uh, use their patrons for leverage, that this community is self-sustaining and loves each other and everybody's working hard, that's good. And if this community works hard and, and, and doesn't go well for them, well, at least they aren't being charged with not working hard, right? And so there's that part of it. But, but the, the even bigger part of it is the, the understanding that you and I are image bearers. And as created by God as image bearers, that, that there's something beautiful about that, that that actually is our vocation. That your vocation primarily is not your job that your vocation informs your job. So what is your vocation? Well, as an image bearer of God, you are actually a steward. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for that is priest. That's weird, right? I mean, Peter calls us priests, and in, in, in Old Testament verbiage is priests, and that you and I are actually created to bear God's image to the people around us. It's, it's what uh, N.T. Wright called angled mirrors. And you're probably wondering why we have angled mirrors on stage. But this, this, uh, it's because I'm very vain. And I, I want you to see the back of me. I'm just kidding. That's why it's angled, so you can't. No, the point is, is that, that we are supposed to be like angled mirrors, meaning that, that we reflect the godness through us to the world around us. And in return, okay, in return, that we don't take credit for anything we do, we actually reflect that praise back up. Does that make sense? And so our vocation as priests, or our vocation as stewards is to actually do the reflecting, to, to show people what God is like. And what is God like? An unrelenting, loving, passionate, compassionate person in the form of his people to a world desperate for it. 
And so your vocation is a priest and a steward, and your vocation informs your job. It informs your personality. It's your, you're a, you're a Myers-Briggs ENFT or a, or a INJP or whatever you are. Your personality makes your creativity, everything, your set of experiences, the intelligence that you've been gifted with, the schooling, all of that stuff worked out in your job comes through your vocation, through hard work and, thanks, and thanksgiving and, and thankfulness to who God is. Second thing is this idea of seeking a quiet life. What does this mean? It means I have to turn the radio down. Do I, what do I, what does this mean? I talk really loud. Do I have to talk less loud? My wife would say, yes, you do. That's biblical. Stop talking so loud. Remember, Paul is talking to a group. The you is a we. He says, your church should not cause an uproar. Your church should not tick people off. Your church should not bully people legally. Your church should not force itself into the public square. There's a guy named Pliny the Younger who was a Roman historian, and he was not a Jesus follower. And he wrote a a letter to his higher up, and he talks about these Christians, these Christians. And he says this, they had been accustomed to come together on a fixed day before daylight and to sing responsively a song to Christ as God. They bound themselves with an oath not to commit some crime, but on the contrary that they would not commit theft, nor robbery, nor adultery, that they would not break faith, nor reserve to refuse to return a deposit when asked for it. When they had done these things, their custom was to separate and to assemble again to partake of a meal, common yet harmless and innocent. See, our pursuit sometimes in our culture is a pursuit of fame. You may not think to yourself, you wake up in the morning and go, God, I'm going to try to get famous today. But as individuals living in a very individualistic and consumer culture, we try to become known and needed and wanted and respected. We have these words like being self-actualized. We feel like there's more meaning that comes our way when we're known, when people need us and want us and respect us. That beauty and intelligence and creativity and all those things bring us some way, some praise, and the more people pay attention to me, the more I will become important. The more people that follow me on social media reach out to me or ask my advice. We live in a culture that takes pictures of each, 
we take selfies of ourselves in important places and important experiences, and we show people what we ate. <laughs> we have a list of experiences on social media that we try to tell people that we're important through those. And sometimes we think that the uh, sideways th- way of thinking it, that the goal of the community is, is having a bunch of people that pay attention to me. That that's the goal of community. Where are my people? Where are the people that pay attention to me? Where are the people that need me? Where are the people that respect me and like me and love me? And the reality is we're just old middle schoolers. <laughs> we're just lying about it. That we've been infected with this individualism and this, this need for people to pay attention to us. And we think that if you could just pay attention to me and know me, then I could have real community. John the Baptist uh, throws a little curveball into that when he talks about his role when Jesus shows up. See, when his role, his role, he was the big deal. He was the, the one who announced that Jesus was coming. And when Jesus came, he said that he must increase and I must decrease. That's John the Baptist. How many of us think about our lives like that? That the older we get, that the more we get into our careers, that the more we get into um, our lives and following Jesus, that we actually have to decrease, become less important. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, said this. It's one of my favorite books ever. He says, how much larger would your world be if you were only smaller in it? How much larger would your world be if you were only smaller in it? And, and this is it's something about following Jesus that changes the way we think about our lives, that others become more important, that, that if we're really following what he's saying, that, that we are pouring out ourselves more and more, that we're interested in others rather than merely seeking to become more interesting ourselves. Something about living a quiet life that Paul's talking about here. Something about not being prideful and boastful and loud, but being quiet and humble. See, I find that the most enjoyable people in my life are the most humble people. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. I love this. He says, God is uh, making this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting about like little idiots. The little idiots we are. He says, I wish that I had got got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief and the comfort of taking the fancy dress off getting rid of the false self, which with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing, to get even near it, even for a moment, he says, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. This idea of getting rid of all that stuff is so refreshing and so beautiful and so satisfying, and yet we just fumble around wanting more. It's funny, like human beings, I heard someone say that human beings are the only creatures that 
live like we do and need our same species to pay attention to us. I mean, I mean when you think about it, like, animals don't do this. Like, like bears don't do this, you know. They, 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 we're the only ones that do that. We're just like, what do you think? What do you, you know, we're just like, what do you think of me? Am I important to you? I need to be important to you. Please tell me I'm important to you. Paul says, lead a quiet life. Find that quietness. And the last thing as we finish is this, love. He talks about we need to love and love well. Verse 9, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, to just keep doing this. To, he's not scolding them. He's not saying, you guys aren't good at loving. He's actually saying, no, you're really good at loving. Do it better. You're so good at this. Keep going. Like he's encouraging them. He's, he's not scolding them. He's encouraging. But let me ask you this. What about us? Would, if he wrote this letter, would he be encouraging us? Would he be kind of scolding us? He's like, you guys just kind of show up when you have to. You guys just kind of, uh, you know, you, got, you keep your distance, you know, a little bit too much. You, you, you pretend, um, you know, you pretend that everything's fine in the lobby. You, you really don't want to know uh, that, that people are in need because then it would require something of you. See, this, this word love is this phileo love, this this family love, the, the kind of love that I don't think we really get. Because when we think of family, we think of Thanksgiving and extended family and weird arguments. No, the, the family love they're talking about is drop anything at any time for your family. That your name means everything kind of love. And he says, and, and, and this is how you were taught. You were taught by God to love each other. How does God teach us to love each, love each other? He teaches us by loving us. He shows us. How does he show us? Well, it's this little interesting thing that while we were at odds with God, while we were trying to become our own God, God died for us. And you just look at the cross, a man dying for the sake of the world, that you could come to know your, your creator like you know a friend kind of love. That's the most inclusive action ever. And it's an invitation to anyone and to everyone. And, and this is this love that God has taught us. That if that sinks in deep enough, it changes how we love other people. It changes how we drop everything for others. It changes how we sit in other people's mess with them. See, our version of love in our world is accept me. Accept me. If you don't accept me, you don't love me. But God's love for us is not about acceptance. It's about perfection. 
that yes, God accepts us right where we are, where we're at, but his love doesn't leave us there. It, it can't leave us there. It will, it will burst through every wall to keep us moving on towards what God wants us to be. So this Great Commission is a, is a you know, we, we memorize it. Some of you memorize the Great Commission. They go into all the world and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we think that's the end of the Great Commission, but it's not. The end of the Great Commission is actually one more line, and it says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And what did Jesus command? This is Jesus making the statement. What did Jesus command? He commanded people to love their neighbor, love their enemy, to live in such a way to be so generous that it actually caused them to need and to rely on God. To focus on people in such a way that, that brought them hardship. To not worry. And his love for us is this wooing us to follow him. This love that God has for us is this wooing us to follow him. And so my question for us is, do you love people who are only like you? Who only have your same perspective and maybe your same work ethic or maybe your same upbringing or Because then really only, the, the only thing that tells you is that you love yourself, right? I mean, that's, that's easy to love ourselves. We're taught to love ourselves. What are our motives? Do we have any other motives in our love for people? Are we loving people to get something from them? Are we loving people to get notari- notary from them? Are we loving them so that they'll love us back? Because that's not the love that God does for us. The love God does for us is a love that's free and lavished on us even if we don't love him back. That's a risk God took. James talks about this idea of favoritism in his letter to the church in Jerusalem. And he talks about how if someone comes in and, and they're not like you, and, and you say, oh, you're not welcome here. And he talks about this in, in, in the first part of James. It's talking about favoritism. And he's like, actually, if you are loving people just for what they can give you, that's actually sin. That's actually wicked. If you love people for what they can love you, that they can return to you. And so here's the thing. We're trying to struggle. We're struggling with who does God want us to be as a church? Do we want to be a cool church or do we want to be the bride of Christ? Do we want to be a church? And that's the difference, being a church trying to be cool or trying to love in such a way that it causes curiosity. I mean, a real genuine curiosity. Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote a book called Brothers Karamazov, and in it he said this, love a man even in his sin. That is the summit of love on earth. Loving a person even in their worst is actually the supreme love of love on earth. Are you willing to become like Jesus in your love for one another? See, what, if, what would it look like if a small little community of people that, that met, met in a rental facility off of Wadsworth 
on Sunday mornings and, and despair through the week, okay? Came together, encouraged each other, uh, uh, devoted themselves to each other, heard from the Holy Spirit together, and then dispersed and lived out their vocation as priests and stewards in their jobs, in their neighborhoods, in their families, and lived such quiet, humble lives as not to bring attention on themselves, but instead loved people that didn't deserve it, that wouldn't even be able to repay it, in such a way that this world took notice. What would that look like? And instead of being known for the things that we're against and the things that we're for and drawing lines in the sand, that we actually lived like we were people of the future, you know? There's this final bit here in the book of Joshua. There's this, the story goes that the people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years and they've been eating uh, donut holes come from the sky <laughs> Okay, that's what, I, as a kid, I thought, man, that'd be cool if they were donuts. And they were eating manna. They were eating manna all the time. And, and you, some of you know the story. And then, and then there's this day where the spies go into the land. And they come back out and they talk about everything. And then on the day after the Passover, it says in verse 11 of chapter 5 of Joshua, it says, on the day after the Passover, they ate some of the produce of the land. They're on the other side of the Jordan River, and they're about to go in the, in the land that God has promised them, the land of Canaan. And they had brought some of the produce. The, the people had, had come across and, and got some of the fruit and the produce from the land. And, and, and after the Passover, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. No more donut holes. And in verse 12, it says, the day after that, the manna stopped. The people of Israel never had manna again. That year, they began to eat the crops that grew in Canaan. You know, it got me thinking. Like, are we the people, like, they, they were eating what was to come. They were preparing for what was to come. They were actually eating the fruit of the future in the present, even though they hadn't crossed over the land yet. What are we doing are we eating the fruit in the future? Are we, are we thinking about, are we living our lives in such a way that the future is actually breaking in right now? Right now. With how you deal with your neighbor and how you, how you love your boss, even though he's a jerk. And how you deal with that difficult kid in your classroom and, and how you deal with that kid that drives by your house at like 80 miles an hour. And I, somebody wants to throw rocks at them. Maybe me. It, it, it just might be me. How do, you, how do you live your life in the future? How can we be the people, the church of the future? And my final, last quote comes from a book that's called Love is the Name of the Game. The author says, we will, the author says, we will not make a difference by having a better Sunday morning service. You hear me? By serving better coffee, although we could, that, that could help, actually. The coffee could be better, right? By having a more extroverted and energetic staff, by avoiding the hard questions, by keeping things shallow and palatable, 
nor will we make a difference by focusing on precise theological doctrine. He says, we will make a difference by being the people of God, such that his love is evident in us and through us. That's the church I want to be a part of. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. And uh, Dan's going to come up and lead us in communion, but I'm going to pray as he comes up.